Listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Ben Steiner, Peter Galindo, and Alexander Gonge Ruzic. Welcome back, folks, and welcome back to episode 106 of the Northern Football Podcast. It's January 31st, the first month of the year, already in the rear view. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and follow us on all the social media wherever you're listening to this podcast as well. Alex Gonge Ruzic, Peter Galindo, Ben Steiner with you today. Alex, Peter, how are you guys doing? We're good. Um, that is a tremendous first take, not fifth or sixth take, but first take of the intro, Ben. I'm very proud of you. Work hard, play hard over there. <laughs> Certainly a busy time in Canadian soccer, and we'll keep going on this podcast. A little bit of a rocky start, but you listening at home, not necessarily seeing that. As we were recording our podcast, Andrew Gordy of News Hub New Zealand, exclusive Canada men's head coach, John Herdman has agreed to be the next coach of the All Whites, the New Zealand national team. Now, you click on the article, it says contracts haven't been signed. The deal cannot be considered official. A lot of people jumping to conclusions on this one. What do you take of this report? And could this just be a negotiating ploy from John Hurd? Look, I do think that he's still focused on Canada, at least for now. But I think, if anything, the timing of this couldn't really be more curious. And we said it after the World Cup, guys. If the CSA continues to struggle financially if they can't inject more cash into the Federation and can't provide Herdman and Priestman what they want and need to bring their programs to the next level and bring Canadian soccer to the next level, certainly Herdman might get disgruntled and leave. And I think this is the first warning sign of that. I don't think it's going to happen, but the fact that this has been trickled out there does indicate that, listen, guys, if this continues over the next couple of years, do not be surprised if that becomes an actually serious offer and he ends up taking it. I, I think it's one where you see the headline and there's obviously the alarm bells. John Erdman has agreed to be the next coach, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, fair, but I, it is one where you just you look at the timing of things. I think the biggest one also has to be highlighted I would be very shocked if, you know, John Herdman, coach of a Canadian uh, World Cup, men's World Cup bound team in 2026 would leave to, I guess, a New Zealand team that's going to be all but guaranteed to qualify in 2026. Yes, but a team that's a very different stage of their development. But also what this shows is, yeah, I think it could very well be just negotiation posturing one. And it's one that benefits both sides. Because if you're New Zealand, the fact that you get this out there that, oh, we've been in talks in John Herman, it shows that, okay, they're they're serious about revitalizing their men's uh, program. Because obviously after, you know, missing out on the World Cup through the playoff, and now that they have this guaranteed, or not guaranteed, but all but guaranteed birth based on what we know about the the Oceanic Confederation in 2026, they will want to send a message because uh, they do have some good players. It feels like they're, they've been a team that's just kind of been middling along because they don't have much competition. Uh, etc. But then also from John Herdman's point, it makes a lot of sense. Like Peter, like Peter mentions, new contracts are due. It does show because it's not like a Burnley link, say from earlier last year, or it's not like a Championship or a Premier League link. Yeah, if you, if if he left Canada to go take a Premier League job, you wouldn't fault him in a sense because it's like okay, he's worked so hard at the national team level, he gets a club opportunity, he wants to go try something else. That's fair. But to to have an offer like this, which 
at best, you could consider a lateral move, even maybe argue a, a downgrade because you're going from the likes of Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David and Tejan Buchanan to Chris Wood. You know, it's not the fact that it emerges maybe is also from Herdman's side. Like, look, if if a country offers me the right salary, the right term, which could also be up there, the right you know vision the right role the right planning that you know it might not have to be a step up for him to consider that role so i think it also is one of those negotiation it feels like based on what peter just said it's more of a negotiation thing than you know a report that you're like okay it's worried because yeah i think if it's more of a move upward you're one like okay you start to sweat but it just feels like based on everything that's going on and you made the the coaching stuff it, it just feels like there's a lot more Oh, oh, ulterior motives at play. It's not one where you look right away like, oh, shoot, that could legitimately happen. It just feels like one that has more other, uh, you know, implications. Groundbreaking news for the men's national team and women's national team. It was a big week in CONCACAF and Comdebol. CONCACAF announced a partnership with Comdebol, which includes CONCACAF participation at the 2024 Copa America, which will be hosted in the United States. The top six finishers from the 2023-2024 CONCACAF Nations League will join the 10 Comitable sides at the Copa America. Now, that's a massive chance for Canada. It is, and the actual news of CONCACAF participation is not exactly newsworthy. This has been reported for a while now. We just didn't really know what the format would be or how it would work. There were reports right before this official release came out, actually, that Morocco was going to be an invited team to join the rest of the 16-team field. But now that it's been confirmed, what I find really fascinating about this is not so much that, and I'm sure we're going to get into the whole implications for Canada Copa America, even though we did talk about that quite a bit to close out 2022, but it's more so the fact that because you now have to qualify through the Nations League, that now takes away more opportunities to face off against more top-tier opposition, even in friendlies, right? And I know that the opportunities still would have been few and far between with other confederations having to do qualifying or displaying in other competitions, what have you, but that to me is is going to be intriguing to see. But I feel like the fact that there is now that other carrot to dangle when it comes to dual nationals or even when it comes to maybe some other players who might be thinking of hanging up the boots once and for all to stick around and maybe fight for yet another trophy, even though I don't think Canada will end up being in the running, but to at least play against that caliber of opposition again, that's massive. And frankly, I think that this partnership's also long overdue, guys. And the fact that it now encompasses both the men's and the women's game, as well as club competitions, really not surprising. I feel like they've both been talking about this for more than 10 years now, and it's finally become a reality. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about, because there's a question specifically, I'll talk about what this means maybe for Canada and the Nations League and the Gold Cup and, you know, like Peter just teased like the timeline of some of the players because it does tweak things. But I mean, first and foremost, it's great news for uh, for CONCACAF. Of course, you would have maybe liked this a bit before, not like two or three games into this Nations League cycle because while the next Nations League cycle will implicate, or, you know, will be the one that decides te- uh, that which teams go to Copa America, all of a sudden, like all the teams in League A may need to make sure they do not get relegated for next year because that would run, uh, take them out of the running uh, for that. So that's obviously something that maybe if a team 
took it a little easier in the in the fall like you know or actually not in the fall sorry a lot but last spring or early summer i guess it really was it was just before early summer so it was late spring you know maybe some teams that are in rebuilding cycles that are on the the verge of relegation you know, they're maybe they're going to be regretting, uh, you know, like a Suriname, for example, just one point uh, and they're on the brink because uh, Jamaica is already guaranteed of not being caught by Suriname. So, for example, Suriname's a team that I'm sure would have loved to be in this Copa America, given their proximity, uh, you know, to, uh, to to South America. You look at Canada and the U.S., obviously, having both dropped a result in the in that June window. They're also teams that should be safe from relegation, but it's CONCACAF. You do never uh, no, and you know, ditto with Mexico as well. It's one where it's not likely, but say Jamaica and Suriname picks up uh, wins against them, which I think that they, they those are the two games. All of a sudden, Mexico can drop. So obviously, it's funny that this news comes now, and you realize, oh shoot, maybe some teams that uh, didn't go all in on Nations League back then will will we'll be regretting that now. But uh, other than that, yeah, the news itself is fascinating, and that's just that's not the only news that the this partnership brings, uh, which is also exciting. Certainly not the only news that this partnership brings. Meanwhile, the top four commendable women's teams will participate in the 2024 Gold Cup to make up the 12-team field with the eight CONCACAF teams. The two CONCACAF teams that will participate in the 2024 Summer Olympics, the United States and then either Jamaica or Canada, will qualify directly for the 2024 Gold Cup. The remaining six CONCACAF nations will be determined through the 2023 road to the CONCACAF Gold Cup. The four guest Commonable teams have been determined based on results of the 2022 Women's Copa America, Brazil, the champions, Colombia, the runners-up, Argentina, and Paraguay, who made the third place and fourth place spots. Finally, the two confederations will also organize a Final Four-style club competition featuring the two best clubs from each confederation. The teams will qualify through the existing Commonable and CONCACAF club competitions. The plan is to stage this tournament sometime in 2024. So a lot on the women's side. A lot on the men's side with this CONCACAF commendable cooperation. And it's only positive, I think. And especially on the women's side, I think it's very positive for the commendable nations that get to test themselves against the likes of the defending World Cup champions and defending Olympic champions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And with the amount of money that's being invested now in the women's game, specifically in places like Colombia, now a little more so in Argentina, and Brazil has usually had a decent amount of investment there. You, you want to be able to test yourself outside of those World Cup and Olympic settings. And then on top of that, it does give Canada, the U.S., even a rising nation like Mexico, whoever it is, the chance to play different quote-unquote teams. I know Canada's played Brazil quite a bit, but you know a lot of those Latin countries are really starting to make inroads in the women's game. And they're only getting better, whereas I feel like Canada, they're still producing the talent and and clearly they are probably going to be like a sneaky contender to possibly make a deep run in this Women's World Cup and, and potentially even win it. We'll see. But I feel like it can only help them if there are more teams that are also making strides in this way. So the fact that you're going to have a few different teams involved that you're maybe not necessarily used to facing all the time. Plus the fact that they are making inroads. This is only going to help the women's game on really both confederations. You're going to get better. Even if you're not necessarily getting those same results where you're beating Cuba eight, nothing at CONCACAF qualifiers, you're getting better when you're playing top nations and with other teams and other countries making those inroads in the women's game, you're starting to see that sort of, sharp, sharp, and sharp type match make its way into the women's game that's been so evident in the Canada-USA rivalry over the last several decades. But 
finally sort of spreading into South America. And of course, you'll have the, the women's finalissima between England and Brazil as well. Another game where those two nations are going to be tested uh, and at a sold out Wembley Stadium as well. So, I mean, you're getting those games that teams can improve by playing rather than just sort of going out and going about their business. And we'll get into our first question. Jordan SC, how important will tournaments like the Gold Cup and Nations League be now that we know that you have to be one of the top six CONCACAF teams to make it to the Copa America, of course, on the men's side? Yeah, well, it's clearly very important, especially when you look at, let's say Canada makes it to Copa America. I'm just using them as an example here. FIFA ranking will likely come into play when it comes to the draw. So therefore, if you end up being, say, a pot three team as opposed to a pot four team, I you know don't have to kind of explain the whole thing, but clearly that's a little more beneficial, right? Because then maybe you'll get one winnable game. And as we saw at the World Cup, that can sometimes make the difference between you finishing bottom of the group with zero points and being in it on the final day and somehow getting in like Australia, right? So that's very important for sure. But it does also mean that you, you can't, necessarily been off the nation's league and now it also comes into question really what the squad planning is going to be for both of those competitions right because let's say canada ends up winning their nation's league group now and i know that this doesn't have any implications on copa america but let's say they end up winning their group against honduras and curacao they get to the semifinals certain players are going to be at the end of a long european season they're going to have impending transfers coming the Gold Cup is always at a very precarious and and really inconsiderate time, I think, for the European players. So what is the squad planning going to be there? Especially knowing that you don't have qualifiers to worry about for, for the World Cup. It's going to be a fascinating question. It's going to be really intriguing to see how they kind of rotate that squad. I, I do imagine they're going to really go for it in Nations League. Uh, just because players will be kind of closer to their peak, right? Because their European seasons will have just ended. And they're still going to go for it to the Gold Cup, I assume, because that's still a trophy that could be out there. Mexico and the U.S., there's a lot of turmoil surrounding them, a lot of uncertainty. You feel like the opportunity is now to not only win one trophy, but possibly a double. Yeah, I mean, in terms of this, I feel like it shifts the cycle as well in terms of what you could maybe do. Because one thing about this 20. 24 Copa America I mean it remains to be seen how FIFA will interpret the this sort of can't call it a merger of course but collaboration because for example in the past guest teams at tournaments uh they, they've been treated a bit differently from FIFA so for example club teams aren't always obligated to release players who play on these guest teams whereas you know of course when you're in a, a, a your a tournament you can't say no uh, so you do wonder next year, of course, if you're Canada, you want your best team at 2024, whatever you may view that to be. Is it your best team at the time? So you see all the veterans or is it your best team to help you prepare for 2026? That is one that will it will remain to be seen over the next year. But at the very least, it, it means now you're going to want all your eggs in that 2024 basket. So what I do feel that means since you, the Nations League has added implications now this year, you're going to see all out of nations like not that there wasn't going to be the case before because you know Canada does want to win this trophy they certainly do not want to get relegated but now you have to ensure you don't get relegated at least make the final four and then once you're there that's a trophy to chase especially in the summer with the gold cup as we know it's always a bit of an adventure getting players from their clubs to the gold cup having knowing that you have this Copa America next year so you're not waiting till 2025 for a summer tournament 
it all of a sudden does make sense to, of course, you try to take as many guys that you can to this gold cup, but if clubs like Bayern, if clubs like Lille or wherever Jonathan David is at, at the, at the time, if these clubs are giving you a bit of headache, it all of a sudden does make sense to say, look, okay, take them next this year, but we need them next year for the Copa America. Do do whatever you need. And then maybe you, with the lack of games that we mentioned between uh, now and, and the Copa America for friendlies for these sort of games, uh, especially chances to get young players in and committed, maybe all of a sudden this Gold Cup this summer, knowing that you have another one in 2025 as well, it is a chance for you to, uh, you know, get those youth players in. So I do wonder if that, that will happen, but of course uh, it remains to be seen. And from Nick Spirit at Nick Spirit for assuming Canada finishes top six in Nations League and qualifies for the Copa America, does Gold Cup become a U23 or non-senior team tournament or will the Gold Cup just be scrapped at some point? See, this is a fascinating question to me because ever since Victor Montaliani became CONCACAF president and introduced the Nations League and has really started to hammer home the importance of it, adding more flyers to it and more implications to it. And now we have the women's side of it. You feel like all the confederations are really going to lean into this a lot more. And I, I don't think that means that the gold cup goes away, but it's a very good question to ask in terms of what the future of it's going to be, because you now have the Commonwealth teams who are likely going to join the UEFA version at some point. You've now got the Comebol and CONCACAF teams arranging this joint Copa America, right? And to me, it, it just raises the question of, does the Nations League just essentially become the, the template for the non-Euro, the non-Copa America, which I also think the future of it's going to be fascinating too. The, the, you know, basically, like, does that replace everything? Because we now see how it's utilized in Euro qualifiers and World Cup qualifiers, and now it's going to be part of Copa America and everything. So I feel like we've seen this coming because it feels like the more that's been added, especially to the CONCACAF version of Nations League, you feel like it was always headed down this path. I don't think the Gold Cup goes away because it's too much of a moneymaker for the Confederation. But in terms of whether or not the teams will start to field, quote unquote, less competitive sides, that might be the really big change here. We've already seen teams in the past field occasionally weak sides in the gold cups so like every second time that there's a gold cup it's a b squad from mexico it's a b squad from the u.s it's mm-hmm. an a minus squad from canada so because it's at such an awkward time in the summer you're pulling at sort of heartstrings on players trying to get them away from club preseasons and then if somebody's recently signed a deal they want to impress it their club preseason and stuff like that. A lot of European mm-hmm. teams doing tours of the U S at that point as well, going head to head with gold cup matches. And so I don't know whether you're actually going to see much of a change in, in roster for the gold cup, even if it becomes a bit of a secondary competition, That's true. It, it might already be at that point. Yeah. Well, I think the gold cup future has already been compromised the last four years. I just don't think it's sustainable to host it every two years. I think that's probably that's the it. biggest change because the, the cup's not going anywhere. I think these sort of continental competitions are valuable. You see the Euro, you see Copa America, you see AFCON, Asia Cup. 
you know, the Oceania tournament as well. These are all valuable tournaments. Obviously, they'd be more valuable if the Confederations Cup came back. That's a whole other venture I won't get into today. But in terms of the, those tournaments, they are valuable. I just don't think it's sustainable for, you know, for CONCACAF to have them every two years. Because, yeah, no, no confederation really does that. I mean, we've had those weird Copa America years because they had the centenario that they wanted to hit. And then they had the whole log jam. And it's been ditto in AFCON with already the congestion that they have in their schedule. It makes zero sense to be running it every two years. So I think that's the one shoe that's going to drop. And I think that would be huge because if it's every four years, then teams are going to you know care about it. Because for U.S. and Mexico, the biggest issue is that they do care about the tournament. They have sent A teams in recent memory. It's just now there's so much congestion. They have Nations League. They have World Cup qualifiers. It's one where they'll just, you know, they have these years where they're like, screw, we can't afford to to have all these players there because we need them in X amount of months time for for their, you know, the more important games. And I think if it's every four years, that's something that teams will start to prioritize more and it will fix that problem of, you know, teams not always sending uh, their A-plus teams. And from North Van Steve at North Van Steve, is it possible that we will see a permanently merged Copa America and Gold Cup tournament competing in the years between World Cups and America's version of the Euros? Good question. I really don't know. I think it entirely depends on whether Colmebol joins UEFA's Nations League. I think if they do, probably less of a chance, but I feel like we'll see it semi-regularly still. Because the fact we saw it in 2016, we're going to see it again eight years later. Um, I believe MP and Silva, this was 2015, I want to say, they were teasing a potential like America's Champions League between CONCACAF and CONMEBOL. So the fact that you now have a four-team tournament coming potentially in 2024 involving clubs... That's really no surprise because that's been in the works now for almost 10 years. Um, I honestly don't know. I, I do, though, think that we're going to eventually start to see more CONCACAF teams playing in Copa America. Not so much because Ball needs them, but it's just that hosting those games in the U.S. is such a massive moneymaker from the TV and the gate side of it, the, the marketing side of it, and then the CONCACAF teams could also use the competition too. And from German Pope, any way too early predictions for how the CanMNT will do in the Copa America, and I can't see them making it very far. It really depends, I guess, entirely on their group. Like if they get, let's say, a winnable game, and if you end up having, because I would assume you're going to do four team groups with four teams each in them, top eight or top two advance, you start from the quarterfinals, go onwards. I don't imagine they'll get out of their group. It entirely depends kind of what sort of draw they get and and what pot two team I would imagine ends up getting drawn with them, but they'll be competitive. I think because if there's one thing that the world cup showed, it's that, yeah, certain margins meant that they ended up losing all their games, but they were in every single match bar, maybe like say a 15, 20 minute spell in some of those games and if one or two things went differently, like say a Shtaku doesn't get hurt, if Atiba Hutchinson was like three years younger or just had more in his legs, maybe a bit more midfield depth, what have you, better goalkeeping, etc., they get some results and they're in it in the final day to possibly get out of the group. So you you honestly just don't know because really I don't think anybody expected Canada to have all the problems they had entering that World Cup. And lo and behold, that's what happened. I'd say groups removed because that affects a lot. I think this Canadian team's potential for next year, so that gives them a year's time, of course, to play together, et cetera, 
they can be a quarterfinal team based on the talent of uh, etc but of course it depends on the draw it depends who you're getting as a pot one team because obviously from a Canadian perspective, it feels like you don't want Argentina or Brazil in any case. I mean, you don't want Ecuador based on the players they're exporting, but I'm sure if you're Canada, you'd rather have uh, Ecuador, uh, who are now armed with uh, Peru's former coach there, Ricardo Goreca. Thank you. Right? Thank you for so, reminding uh, me. Sh- yeah. shout, out for, shout out to Ecuador for uh, that coup. But uh, yeah, you obviously would want, he wouldn't want the Argentina-Brazil because that would also help give you maybe a pot one game that you have more of a chance of drawing in. Again, this is... Ecuador is a good team, so I'm not suggesting that. But uh, you, you look at that and say maybe in pot two, if you get lucky, you get the Mexico or U- U.S. Of course, you want the teams in CONCACAF that you're used to playing if you want to go getting out. And uh, I guess that if anything, what that shows is that there's, I think this is a win-win scenario because either you get a tough group and again, it's one where you need these sort of sort of tough games where you're playing Argentina in a tournament setting, Brazil, you know, these Paraguays who, who are really improving a lot, Ecuador, you know, Colombia looks like a team that could could really, you know, take make a comeback from uh, last cycle. You want to play those teams in a competitive setting, but also if you get luck of the draw and you get some teams you're maybe more comfortable with, teams you're more familiar with, teams that you can beat, you have a chance to go deeper in the tournament. I think that's a win-win. So I'd say the potential is quarterfinal, but it really depends on the draw. But I'd say there's no bad draw for Canada, given what's at stake. No, and I think what would be really beneficial too, just if we look at the draws and whatnot, because on paper you could say Canada on their day can be the best team in CONCACAF because they proved it in qualifying. They've taken points off of the big boys, right? And in South America, outside of Bolivia, I feel like they'd be below almost everybody else, depending on what happens within the next 12 to 18 months, right? So just from that alone, if you put them in like that 9-10 spot, they're in the run for the quarterfinals. But also, if you look at the draw from the Copa America Centenario, and I would not be shocked if it goes this way again, Mexico and the U.S. were seeded in that draw. Like, the defending champions, Chile, were in pot two. Colombia, who I think was a top 10 team at the time, was in pot two. Uruguay and Ecuador joined them as well. Um, And that put a team like Jamaica, who was ranked 54th in the world, in pot three. That put Panama in 64th in pot three. And a pot four team in Venezuela, who was in the 83rd position at the time, they were in pot four. They got out of their group because they had a relatively weak slash balance group if you want to call it that they had mexico uruguay and jamaica and i think uruguay at the time their their hearts just weren't in it like they didn't really care about the tournament and so they were essentially a bit of a walkover so you, you honestly just don't know i feel like if that happened then all the more reason why canada could possibly get out of the group and maybe get to a quarterfinal and we know how all flawed the the fifa rankings are anyway so yeah. there's a chance that some teams end up in you know in rankings that they shouldn't be i mean for now a team like costa rica is ahead of, of canada obviously after winning a game at the world cup and if they stay ahead i mean costa rica they had a good world cup but that's not a team that's necessarily you know trending as, as, as upwards as say i mean they found some some young prospects they're not trending as upwards as canada so that's one where you know costa rica ends up in a pot two or pot three that's also another team that you're looking if you're canada like okay that's that's you know probably good for for them in the in that circumstance and we also know that Canada's Nations League match against Honduras on March 28th will be played at BMO Field in Toronto. Another Nations League match, another national team match heading back to BMO Field, seemingly the home of the national team, despite BC Place getting a little cup of coffee and a match against Curacao. But Michael asks, are you guys happy with Canada's next Nations League home fixture being in Toronto 
or do you have liked it to be held somewhere else? Well, in an ideal world, I think Montreal would have been cool because um, they are long overdue for a men's team game. And the fact that a pretty sizable majority of the spine of the national team either plays for CF Montreal or recently played for CF Montreal, I think all the more reason. Um, but look, the players are more comfortable playing in Southern Ontario. That's where the majority of them are from. There's the travel element and it's a pretty quick turnaround between games. I'm not surprised. Professionally for us, it helps because we'll all be in Toronto at the time covering the game and covering the training sessions and all that. So that helps. But um, if it was up to me, I would have loved to have seen it in Montreal personally. Yeah, I mean, yeah, all things created equal. You'd love Montreal, maybe even Ottawa, throw a game in the nation's yeah. capital. So, you know, some of the venue that's big enough, but also you want to, you know, proximity. Because, yeah, you just look at the travel of having to go to Curacao, which is ridiculously far if you ever have a moment. <laughs> Take a look at the map and see how far the first game in Curacao is going to be before they have to head up to Honduras. It's 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 quite the trek. Um, it's in South America, basically. Because of that. So, like, you're, you're flying, is. like, across like, the, you know. A boat's a, a stone's throw away, pretty much, from, yeah. uh, from, from being in South America. So you're going all the way down to there. You know, the grass, too, I think is a huge one just because if you're you're already doing a lot of travel, you know, you're going to Curacao. I'm not a, I'm not sure if Curacao has an artificial uh, pitch because I know some teams down in uh, around there do. I, I might be mixing up because I know Suriname does, for example, have an artificial pitch. Um, so, for example, if you're playing turf there, you have the travel. You probably want the surface as well. That takes away a little, you know, you, you don't want to be playing on a hard, cold turf somewhere in March. So. I think it's just one where logistically it's one where, of course, we'd all love to see uh, see it in different stadiums. But, yeah, I mean, Toronto, is it was always kind of going to be Toronto unless they found some way with the new Montreal turf, uh, a big O to, to work something out. But obviously that doesn't look to be the case. And from Ariane at Ariane 5, if you were John Herdman, would you take an A team for Nations League and bring the B team for the Gold Cup? Yeah, if you had the choice, I guess. Uh, I don't know how many players from the A team, quote unquote, he could leave out in order to still feel the relatively competitive side because there are some depth problems, um, specifically at center back, potentially in the midfield as well. The attack would be fine. Um, goalkeeping would be fine. Fullback would be relatively okay. That would be the one sort of question I'd have with it. Um, I imagine we won't see too, too many changes from the Nations League to the Gold Cup squad. I think it'll be almost what we saw in 2021 in that you're still going to see quite a few of the stars. You might see, say, a half dozen different players, maybe a bit less than that, like four or five players different to what we normally see. And then they might end up getting a, a run out here and there. Well, if I were, yeah, if I were John Herdman, I definitely would prioritize Nations League right now just because. Yeah, you have the chance to, of course, secure your your Copa America spot. You don't want to get relegated, so there's a reason. You add in that all these Gold Cup or the, all these Nations League games are in these uh, official FIFA windows, and that other teams are going to take it seriously. Like you look at 2021, where Mexico and US sent A teams to Nations League and B teams to Gold Cup, so it allows you to have your A teams playing against other A teams, which you, you want. Uh, you, you know, you, you add in the fact that the gold there's another gold cup in two years. Of course, you want to go all out and win a gold cup at some point. But now you look at Copa America ahead in the schedule. I think this, you know, based on how congested the schedule has been, and that we're two months removed from a World Cup, it just makes a lot of sense for this year's Gold Cup to maybe focus on getting some younger players in. Of course, again, call all the A 
team players that you can, but I feel like it's one where you should go young heavy uh, just to, to really get some of them, some of these players, these chances, because you just look at the schedule and yeah, right, right now I'm assuming they find a way to make the nation's league final four, which would be in June. There's no non-competitive games all the way till next September. Like you want chances to to get some some young players sometime in between now and then. That's why I'd say maybe uh, in Ju- July. I wouldn't call it B team. I just say younger team, just so you can try and really again. You have to find at some point to build for 2026 uh, at some point and really get these young players a chance so that it's not they're not getting thrown in. Uh, ha- you know, just thrown in at, at a certain opportunity when when the time comes. You do want there to be some sort of easing and passing of the torch. And from WSoccer.ca at WSoccer.ca, what's your roster prediction for the She Believes Cup this February? Any players on the fringes that you would like to see make the squad? I don't know about Alex. I can't see too many surprises. Uh, I mean, obviously injuries will maybe mean one or two differences because obviously there are some players that are still trying to come back from injury and stuff. But I think that this is just going to be another litmus test in terms of whether the squad's prepared for the World Cup. Um, As for fringe players, I'd like to see. I know that they're pretty loaded out wide as well as up front, but I think the recent form of Jenna Hellstrom in France has been really encouraging. Like her going from Sweden to a top league in France and adapting very quickly and contributing to the attack right away. I think that bodes well for her. And I know that she is a bit of a late bloomer because she's 27, I believe. Um, But listen, a a lot of players in the player pool also maybe blossomed a little later, like Chloe Lacasse. She was in her mid-20s when she started to take off, and now she's in the national team picture. So she'd be one player that I'd kind of like to see make it, but if she didn't crack the squad for the Chivalese Cup, I also would not be devastated. There's also the one to consider in Victoria Pickett. She's still on the fringes of the national team, despite having strong NWSL seasons, and I mean, she's not really gotten any love from the national team, but I'd love to see her at least given a chance. Um, but I don't know whether there's possibly something there uh, off the pitch between her and Bev. I'm not not saying that there is, um, but I'm just wondering sort of, it seems like she's played at a level good enough to get in the national team. So maybe give her a chance. But as you said, I think this tournament is a bit more of a litmus test just to see where this team is at ahead of the World Cup. Yeah, and I mean quite a few names uh to, to look at at the fringes i think this squad is going to be bigger three game window does allow that allow you to do that uh nice thing it's based in the u.s so i do also think we'll see a fair few ncaa players rounding out that squad um so of course your regular your usual suspect so to speak like a simio wujo you know maybe we see like a zoe burns slot back into the picture you know anna karpenko of course, Jade Rose, uh, you know, et cetera. Maybe we see some surprises, like, for example, you know, some of those uh, outgoing seniors uh, that just graduated or something along those lines, like you throw in. I mean, I guess, I guess it's tough up front, but like, yeah, maybe a Tanya Boychuk, uh, or you do really, you go really out there. Emma Reagan just signed in Denmark as a pro. Maybe that's a name you could, you need some defensive and midfield depth. Uh, she can probably cover there. In terms of the other leagues, I mean, the Hellstrom shout was definitely one, especially given uh, Bev Priestman's she's kept an eye on France. Obviously, we've seen Marie Levasseur and Surayaka get call-ups, with the latter even being in the second division when she got call-ups. So I think Hellstrom's form in uh, the top flight should get noticed. Um, there's a few other names there, but Hellstrom was one. And then over in Portugal, there's been a lot of interesting Canadian movement. 
I mean, one player, I, I think it would be interesting to see, especially just seeing how she performed in that recent game against Benfica. I mean, Chandra Davidson has been scoring a lot of goals. Of course, again, we talk about it being crowded up front. There's another name to add if you look at Clarissa, Lyracy, and et cetera. But again, if you're looking at forward options, maybe Davidson, just to get a look, see see what she can do. Maybe, you know, help her push for a move, seeing that she gets that call up into the Canada camp. Uh, and also, if you look in midfield, which would maybe be more of a focus for for Bev Priestman. Again, Mary Yasmin Aladu, ever since uh, she's moved to the Portuguese league, she's been scoring a fair few uh, goals and just being very involved as well. And that's someone that obviously is familiar with the team. So maybe we see her get in. Just could be good to see her compete directly against Simeo Wujo. Because at this point, based on the last year, Simeo Wujo looks not like a lock for the World Cup, but pretty, you know, someone, at least if I'm making the roster, I'd have her very high up on my list. But also I liked what I saw from Aladu last year. So maybe it'd be a good chance to see where the, the two stack up, given that one's in an NCAA environment, one's in a pro environment, which, as we know, uh, are two very different places. And now to the Canucks Abroad Roundup and Mailbag. A reminder that Northern Football Podcast is proudly partnered with Canucks Abroad. Find the full Canadian player pool and daily schedules for Canadians in action at Canucks-Abroad.ca. Alfonso Davies went the full 90 for Bayern Munich in a 1-1 draw with Eintracht Frankfurt on Saturday. That's three straight 1-1 draws for Bayern to start 2023. Certainly not the form that they would have wanted to start the calendar year. And from Philip Rancourt at Phil082, thoughts on Cancelo's move to Bayern. Does it affect Alfonso Davies' future, potentially a transfer to Real Madrid next summer? I don't think it really affects him too much just because it's going to be a bit of a different role for Cancelo because Nagelsmann isn't necessarily of the same mindset of as Guardiola. Yeah, Pavar's performances have gone down. He prefers to play center back as well, so that's causing a bit of a fracas. Mazraoui's hurt. And also, I don't think Cancelo is going to stay past this loan spell. He's going to cost $70 million. He'll be 29 um, and in a position where pace is kind of important, I don't know if Bayern's going to want to invest that sort of capital in a player pushing 30, and especially when he's going to command pretty hefty wages on top of that. Um, and he's going to be playing right back while he's there anyway, so I don't think it affects Davies whatsoever. I think, if anything, this might not only light a fire under Davies a little bit, because maybe he'll have to up his game a little bit if Cancelo starts taking over and he starts becoming the main driver for Bayern in in, in some of the games because Bayern's also not look great as Ben kind of touched on there so I feel like it could work in a number of other ways but as for you know Davies potentially moving to Real Madrid I still think he ends up signing a long-term deal with Bayern and ends up staying there for the rest of his prime years at least yeah I mean in terms of Cancelo I just think he suits Nagelsmann's system more on the right from what we've seen, because obviously at Guardiola, he started uh, as a right back at City under Guardiola, you know, but then last year, he kind of inexplicably became an inverted fullback. I mean, he suited the role very well, just based on how City plays and their wingers are always occupying these interesting spaces. But again, you look at Bayern, they love the, the Alfonso Davies overlap. It's one of their most common plays, the way you know, most of their wingers are right foot, especially those that they play on the left, like Sadio Mane when he's healthy. Uh, you, you add in Serge Nabry when he's playing on the left, Kingsley Coman. Those are all guys who love to cut in. And there you want that, you know, Alfonso Davies to, to, to really make those overlapping runs. Of course, we've seen Alfonso Davies cut in a lot more, uh, but the, he usually just the way it, 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 you plays it, it's a role that suits a left footer more. So I think that's one uh, advantage Alfonso Davies is going to have for keeping his position. 
in terms of Kinsella. I mean, yeah, it's going to be interesting really to see how they balance everything. Cause another thing with Pavar is that he sometimes he, he, he plays a lot more cautious. Uh, whereas, you know, as Kinsella, as we've seen with Man City, he can drift into the final third. So you do wonder if, uh, this will mean maybe a little more conservative role in the midfield for one of Bayern's midfielders. Maybe it's Joshua Kimmich dropping a little deeper to compensate for just what unleashing Cancelo and Davies offers. But I think from Nagelsmann's tactics and how aggressive he's been with his wingbacks in his past, in his past and you know just typically he's liked having his left footers on the left right footers on the right I think Cancelo and Davies will play together just might mean a tweak in midfield but as for the Real Madrid links I I struggle to see him leaving Bayern but I do say it would become realistic because I think his contract's up in I want to say 2025 it is yes. or is it 2024 Five. so I'd say if things if things make it to next year and we don't see an extension because Bayern it does like to get ahead of of, of extending their players while they can uh, I definitely would would be a lot more you know not uh, I, I would see it happening but now I think it, it's we're getting you know we're still a ways away but I think we're getting to a crucial point where it does become possible and I don't think Cancelo is the reason for uh, would be the reason for it changing but you know maybe if they make a Masrawi type style signing on the at left back then I'd, I'd change my tune which is something they could do in the summer. Jonathan David logged 78 minutes, two shots, and three key passes in Lille's 1-0 loss to Nice on Sunday. He's also been diagnosed with a fractured hand, but could be back as soon as this weekend after having hand surgery early this week. Ike Ubo was omitted from Trois' matchday squad as they drew 1-1 with Long. Despite reported interest from the championship, Ubo is staying put with the January window coming to a close. What a debut for Kyle Laren. He came off the bench and scored the winner in the 90th minute for Real Valladolid against Valencia to lift themselves out of the relegation zone. And from Dan Clark at Dan Clark 999, does Laren's goal this past weekend validate the fact that he should have gotten more minutes at Bruges or is it just comparing apples to oranges? I think really, if anything, it just proves that when you put Laren in the right system, you give him the minutes, he's going to get you goals especially because we've seen him come into the national team setting, even when he hasn't been in great form and he still managed to get goals, even while kind of slogging through 50, 55 minutes, he somehow gets a goal in the 60th minute. And then all of a sudden you look at his performance in a completely different way. So I think that's really what it shows us. And maybe that he just wasn't properly utilized at Bruges, right? Um, And we said this so many times before, but Laren really is the ultimate confidence striker. Like when he's leaned on, when he's in the right system, when he's given that confidence from his coach and everything works around him, he really is a solid enough player. Like he's proven he can play in those competitive environments before. Um, And so it's great to see him start off with a bang, with a goal, especially one that can prove very crucial in the relegation battle. Um, But if anything, this kind of just reinforces what we've been saying and that if you play the man in the right setting, he's going to produce the goods most of the time. What I found fascinating about watching Kyle Laren's performance was just the way he was so involved in his 15 minutes. Because the one thing that Kyle Laren does sometimes get the knock for being, and he can very well do it. I mean, we've seen him, you know, sometimes at Besiktas, uh, you know, for Canada, et cetera. He can ghost out of games. He can be a guy where you might not see him for 65 minutes. The nice thing is, you know, that during those 65 minutes, you get a chance in the box. He likely puts it away. 
But think of his, his that one start he had for Bruges, where he started, he scored, but then there was a huge, you know, the big complaint was that, oh, he wasn't involved enough. He kind of ghosted other than his goal. I did find it fascinating that despite playing, you know, for a big game for a relegation-starved team in Valladolid, they're playing against Valencia. Valencia was controlling a lot of the ball. Laren, despite that, he only had three touches, but he was very involved with his touches. He was active. He found it, like, even on his goal, he, he he was the one who brought the ball down, spread it out wide, and then made a late run into the box. I just found it fascinating to see how involved he was. And it makes you kind of wonder if, okay, maybe the system at Bruges doesn't really suit him. And, you know, even you see what's been going on lately with Jukla going from starting to not really being in the lineup. You see Remchuk really hasn't found the form that, you know, I thought someone of his pedigree would be uh, would find. It seems like a hard system for strikers to play. And obviously they hold the ball so much, but they're so flank heavy. They don't really seem to get these touches for the strikers. Which should be fair, it's hard when you're playing teams that are playing these ridiculously, you know, low compact blocks. They're trying to suffocate space out of the middle. So maybe it's one where the league slash team, you know, what the the role that Bruges has in, uh, you know, the league didn't maybe suit Laren as much as well. Cause you see in this game where he was able to get in space, especially, you know, like Vadoi, they're playing in transition. So there's a lot of space when they ran the other way. I found it fascinating to see how involved Kyle Laren was. And I think that's a good sign because of course goals come and go for strikers, as we know, but things like holding up the ball, make, making space for others. Kyle Laren was doing a lot of that. And I think that's the most positive part about this first performance. And from star at Hemalurgi, what are your expectations for Kyle Aaron in La Liga for the remainder of this season? I think it's similar to what the expectations were, at least from me, when Ike Ugbo moved to Troyes in a very similar situation, right? On loan, goal-starved team, in a relegation battle. I said that if he got anywhere from five to seven goals, that would be a job well done. And that's exactly what happened with Ugbo. He got five goals, helped Troyes stay up in Liga and ultimately secured a permanent transfer. I know it hasn't worked out, but I feel the same way with Laren. If he can get in and around five goals between now and the end of the season, maybe we could reconsider that if he doesn't start as many games, then I think that for me, that's a job well done because that could be enough to get Real Valladolid out of the relegation zone, like firmly out of the relegation zone and somewhat comfortably safe. Yeah, I'd say about five to seven goals. Nice thing is, Obviously, as we've seen, he's already become quite famous in the city, which always <laughs> helps in terms of, you know, yeah. uh, keep, keeping your spot and, and going and keeping your form. And also their strikers have struggled. I mean, we kind of talked about it when this mo- move was first in the works. They've really had a st- struggles with number nines getting goals. So the fact that he's already scored just 15 minutes in does show he's getting going to get minutes. And I think, yeah, if you can get five to seven goals, keep Vaidoid up. Nice thing is at the very least, if things go south, he should have no shortage of options. I'd like to think Bruges will facilitate any sort of move and we won't have some weird uh, Ikeugbo gank situation where he wasn't training with them. And then, you know, all that weird, you know, tralala happen. So hopefully I think for Kyler and he can get his five to five or so goals, five plus goals, and then uh, have, have things worked out for the 23-24 season. No Tejo Buchanan for Club Bruges due to suspension, but he should be back this Sunday against Antwerp. In Portugal, Stefan Estacchio is on an absolute heater. He scored for Porto in their Portuguese League Cup semifinal win over Viseu. Then he scored again in the final against Sporting and lifted his club to a fourth trophy in the past 12 months. Steven Vitoria was an unused substitute in Chavez's 2-1 loss to Vitoria on Monday. And over to the EFL, Ishmael Kone started his fourth straight game for Watford against Middlesbrough on Saturday, but he was taken off at halftime. 
Junior Hoylet had a very nice 69 minutes in Reading's FA Cup defeat to Manchester United on Saturday. Meanwhile, Daniel Jebison was sent off in Sheffield's thrilling draw with Ryan Reynolds' Wrexham in the FA Cup. And according to 90-Minute Football, Borussia Dortmund, Eintracht Frankfurt, and RB Leipzig are all showing interest in the potential future Canadian international. And from Aryan at Aryan 5 thoughts on Jebison's links to Dortmund, RB Leipzig, and Frankfurt. If this move transpires and he, and he plays well in Germany, do you think he will have a chance for England, or is he still ours? If he ends up moving to those clubs, I feel like, at least in the Frankfurt situation, possibly Dortmund, because they do have Allaire, but they also have Mukoko. They have a couple of other options. I don't know if he'd start right away, um, but making the jump to Germany, I think, could be beneficial for his career. But his recent form has been really good, and no doubt about it, he's going to get interest because he has that British passport. He's a young player. He's doing decently well recently in the championship and what is a competitive league. So inevitably, these links are going to come back. And he had Premier League interest shortly after making his Premier League debut at 17. So this isn't entirely shocking. Um, I don't think it'll boost his England chances one way or the other because there seems to be a Premier League tax of sorts and that if you don't play in that league, unless you're absolutely lighting it up and you become absolutely difficult to ignore like Jaden Sancho towards the end of Dortmund, you're probably not going to get an England call-up. And he would have to be starting every week and getting a lot of goals in order for that to even be a possible thought. Um, really what it comes down to, because based on the people I've spoken to, Daniel Jebison does want to play for Canada. His parents want him to play for Canada. The problem is the agent side of it. His agent is kind of making him wait it out a little because he's an England youth international playing in England. Perhaps that could be a little more beneficial for the marketing side of it in terms of his potential income. So that's what's kind of keeping this on hold. And that's to me why on one hand, I'm not too concerned about whether or not he's committed as it were to Canada because it seems like he is it's just more so will he actually be steered in that direction by someone who clearly has some influence on his career yeah I mean then the good news is for Jebison is yeah I mean as for Kayo Tomori playing even on a champion of, of a league outside of England sometimes isn't enough to get you uh, notice in terms of form so there's that it'll be very hard to crack the the English lineup and then yeah, you just, again, you look at where things are trending uh, on the Canadian side of things. You know, that interest is there from Jebison. Uh, you know, you, the, there's, I, I do feel that if, say, in the last year, there were more friendlies, you know, and if it wasn't as complicated with this finally having to file a switch due to his England commitments, like, say, maybe if there'd been, like, Canadian youth camps he was eligible for, it, I do feel like uh, we could have very well seen him at least crack that that Canadian shirt and give it a go. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see when that you know when that day comes. Be interested to see what these links mean because I just at this point of his career needs minutes, and now that he's finally getting them at Sheffield, you know that's also not a bad environment. So feels like exciting times are ahead for Jebison because there's kind of that that those four months where he wasn't playing much. It was kind of stalling but he's someone that again once he's getting those minutes once he's getting those reps we've seen how much his game has grown uh it's one that canada will be keeping a close eye on and i'm sure we'll we'll look to at least continue to push as long as he's getting minutes and uh then go from there and over in scotland alistair johnston had a dominant 90 minutes for celtic in their win against dundee united he completed 90 percent of his 102 passes 
two key passes, and won two of his four defensive duels. David Watherspoon had about 10 minutes for St. Johnstone in their 2-0 defeat to Rangers on Saturday. The Aubert was an unused sub. And from David Anthony at A underscore Miller 16, what do you make of Theo Bear's situation at St. Johnstone? He's getting fairly regular cameo appearances, but very little production. Is the SPFL potentially too high a level for him, or is he just a bad fit at St. Johnstone? The Theo Bear situation to me is one that I feel like if he was playing for a team at that maybe slightly lower in the table. I know St. Johnston has kind of been in and around the relegation battle recently, but I think injuries have hurt them. Competing in Europe has kind of set them back a bit. If he was in that setup day in, day out, I don't think he would be a half-bad Scottish Premiership-level striker. Um, I do think his touch needs a lot of work. He has been able to become a better hold-up man. He's been more dominant in the air. He's been getting on the end of some chances a bit more this season. But at the end of the day, if you're not producing the goods, you're probably not going to get a lot of games, especially when you are a little well-known foreign striker. So that really is the, the, the problem, I think, as it were. Plus, his competition is starting to kind of pull ahead of him a little bit too, which hasn't helped. Yeah, and I mean, you look at, with, with Theo Bear's situation, uh, you know, one thing we've seen dating back to his Whitecaps days is, you know, it's enticing when you see a big six foot four striker to say, okay, this is someone you want to hoof the ball to, have him be winning flick ons, your traditional Woot Veghorst, number nine, so to speak. Uh, shout out to the Bobo himself. Um, but, you know, for a guy like Theo Bear, as we've seen with the Whitecaps dating back to his youth days, he's always been someone who runs in behind, runs the channels. I, you know, I think of his goal against CF Montreal back in 2020 for the Whitecaps as a perfect Theo Bear goal. That was a great run down the channel, received the ball, touch, shot far post. And, you, you know, you've looked when I've seen him for the St. Johnston games, he's been asked to play as a more traditional hold up number nine. It's been games where he's okay, just go up front. Be, be an outlet, try to bring down the ball, try to win fouls, really try to be more of a target, which again, it's it's not a role that he's grown up playing. It's not a role that's really suited his best attributes, which are usually his speed, you know, using his finishing, which again, not something you're using from a 6'4 a striker. So it feels like one where if stylistically the fit isn't going to be there because especially a team like St. Johnston, they're trying to fight to stay up. This is, you know, it's a team that's not going to be like, you know, they're going to want to really scrap and push their way up. It could make a lot of sense for Theo Bear to maybe head back to a, you know, a CPL or something, play on a team where he can play that sort of role. Uh, he's comfortable with get some goals, get some confidence just for your striker. Anytime you go, you know, on an extended run where you're not getting, you know, regular goals, it's always going to be tough for you. So I, I do think it's one where, yeah, in the right system in the SPFL, I mean, we've seen it in glimpses in MLS. We've even seen it in glimpses in, in Scotland in preseason games, et cetera, where he, he I think he could, you know, produce a, a decent amount at this level. But stylistically, uh, if it's not there, it could make sense to go to a CPL, get some goals and then uh, go from there. At Ross County, Victor Latoury was a late substitute for the injured Noah Kenna as they crushed Kilman Rock 3-0. He had another 28 minutes versus Sabrina in a 1-1 draw on Tuesday. Atiba Hutchinson got 5-10 minutes for Besiktas in their 3-0 victory over Alianaspor on Friday. He was an unused substitute in Tuesday's game against Karagumruk. Sam Adekubi went the full 90 for Hachiaspor in a huge 2-1 win over Transosaspor. 
which pushed them into 16th, one point adrift of safety in the Turkish Super League. Liam Miller played 61 minutes for Basel in a 3-2 loss to Lucerne. Miller was deployed on the right wing for the second straight game. Scott Kennedy's return from injury didn't quite go according to plan. He was sent off after 20 minutes for Jan Regensburg against Darmstadt. Theo Corbinu made his Armenia Bielefeld debut as a halftime substitute as Armenia lost 2-1 to Sandhausen. Didi Nabzi picked up an assist over the weekend for Pau as they draw 2-2 with Anansi in Ligue 2. Then he had the game-winning goal in a 1-0 win over Paris FC on Tuesday. Not a bad run of form for the ex-CPL recently as he potentially puts himself within the consideration for the national team. And that's the question from Dan Clark at Dan Clark 999. Didi Nabzi has been quietly putting together a solid season at Pau. Two questions. Does he take a crack at a higher caliber team or league? And do you think that he will get any Kenneth looks in 2023? I don't think it'll get to that point quite yet because there is a lot of competition. But um, I do think that the fact that he had some interest from Spain before joining Powell, there is a little bit of credence to that. I think he could actually do very well in that kind of league with his characteristics. And one of the big reasons why he has done so well recently is over the last few weeks, pretty much since the start of the new year, he's been given more freedom to get forward. And I think he's adapted to the pace of play recently to the point where you're starting to see him time his dribbles a little better, get into open space a bit faster, pick out the right pass more often, get into shooting positions. And I think it was only going to be a matter of time. When he first got to Powell, he was getting inconsistent minutes. He was switching from left back to left wing, getting 30 minutes here, sometimes 70 minutes the next game, and 10 minutes then not even playing. It, it wasn't helpful. Now it's a little more consistent. He's taken the opportunities to his credit. I don't think it'll lead to any sort of national team recognition, at least right now. But uh, kudos to Abzi because he's been able to turn it around really, really well. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see because I think maybe, you know, he gets used to uh, league de this year. Or if he can have another strong maybe league de season next year, if he sticks around teams, I'm sure we'll be uh, interested in, in maybe him moving up a level. And then there, that's a whole different discussion. I think as of now, he's someone where, of course, maybe you'd like to have a look. And maybe he's someone where if you're talking about sending a younger Gold Cup squad or guys you want to look at for the Gold Cup squad, maybe he's someone you consider there. But for the right, reality is right now, you've got at that left back position you've got at the very least Sam Atacugbe and Christian Gutierrez there you know as left-footed left backs of course you got Matias Schwanier depending on where he's he's deployed these days you throw in uh that you know you, Alfonso Davies of course if he's playing left back you add in that Richie Larez has been comfortable playing left back it's just hard to crack those names so I'd say now no I don't think that's something we're going to see now but if it's something where if he keeps up his form he could very well position himself to have a move upwards and then from there when he is say in a higher league it's something where his name can very well enter that discussion at the left back or left wing back position. Charles Andreas Brim was also sent off the third Kahneman eligible player to receive a red card this weekend for FC Eindhoven. I guess just a little bit too passionate about the red part of the red and white. Blue Tabla made his debut for new club Manisa after joining from Atletico Ottawa. Tabla logged about 30 minutes in a 1-1 draw, and he says that he thinks that going back over to Europe can actually help grow the CPL. And switching over to the women's side, Sabrina D'Angelo made her debut for Arsenal, the first Canadian male or female to do so, and kept a clean sheet in a 3-0 win over Aston Villa in the FA Cup. Emily Burns got her first start of the year for Dijon against PSG in the Coupe de France. 
Jenna Hellstrom also started up top. Marie Levasseur saw 90 minutes with Fleury, with Sadie Sider Eckenberg making her debut for Le Havre in an all-Canadian clash. Kelsey Rujo went 64 minutes, and Sadie Sider Eckenberg, a former University of Ottawa GG, she's been over at Le Havre for the last little while, but has struggled to get into the first team. Vanessa Gilles went the full 90 to help Leon keep a clean sheet in a 2-0 victory over Montpellier in the Coupe de France. Shalina Zadorsky started for Spurs as usual, and both Jesse Fleming and Kadisha Buchanan started for Chelsea against Liverpool as well. Tons of action in Portugal. Chloe Lacoste registered a brace for Benfica. Caroline Carer logged a brace and an assist for Braga. Maria Yasmin Alidu scored a consolation goal for Familia Sao. And Chandra Davidson had an assist for Sporting. And one final note, legendary Canadian goalkeeper Aaron McLeod officially announced her international retirement after 119 caps. Don't forget to follow Canucks Abroad on Twitter at Canucks underscore abroad and at Instagram at Canucks Abroad for frequent updates on Canadian players worldwide and join the Canucks Soccer Chat on Discord and converse with like-minded soccer fans at www.soccerchat.ca. And from Danny Cunha at Danny Cunha 18, I'm new to following the women's club game and trying to gauge the levels of domestic leagues. Which leagues would you consider a top ranked in terms of the level of play, pay, and competition slash parity? I guess I'll start off with this. I would say that if you're going to be following a league, follow England. They're a top league. Follow Mm -hmm. France. A lot of Canadians and a top league. And also follow the NWSL just because they are a little bit closer to home and I find them very easy to follow for a North American sports fan. Yeah, and also Sweden. That seems to be a jumping board for a lot of Canadian players. Um, but getting yeah, a in terms bit more with Sweden, if you're just kind of yes, getting into oh, no, 100%. it, hundred percent. If you're just getting into it, I would stick to England, probably France. Um, those would be probably your two best choices. Watch some Barcelona and Real Madrid women's teams as well, specifically Barcelona. They're absolutely incredible to watch sometimes. The German league is very competitive. Um, and watch as much UEFA Women's Champions League as you possibly can because, you know, those big clubs like Juventus and Barcelona and whatnot who maybe don't have the strongest domestic league can still end up putting some really good performances together. And those are still pretty massive clubs. So those would be the ones to look at. Yeah, and there's been kind of a fascinating shift in recent years uh, like Italy, for example, uh, is now, uh, you know, they've kind of pushed into the top five leagues, at least, you know, if you use the UEFA coefficients, which shows they've been performing better in European competition, because typically Sweden had been part of the top five. Now, of course, in, on the men's side, you know what the big five is now on the women's side, at least in UEFA, there has been a similar big five where it's been England, France, uh, Italy, Germany and Spain. And I mean, each league's different. I think England, there's more of a even competition amongst the the top half of the table. So if you want something more like, you know, that that sort of competition, you look over at Spain, the technical level of the league is very fascinating because that's been something that they really heavily emphasize. And of course, Barca at the top leads way and Real Madrid trying to push behind. The Bundesliga has been very slept on, um, you know, on the women's side. Germany as well, typically been... Uh, at least their their last generation obviously been very solid, but even recently having made the Euro finals last year, a lot of players coming out of the Bundesliga, very solid level, especially, you know, the beyond, you know, the, the, there's Wolfsburg who have been the traditional powers, there's Bayern, and there's a lot of other interesting clubs that have really pushed them. You know, Italy is you know one where they're really doing a lot of catch-up work because Juventus has kind of led the way in that regard. Uh, so it's one where I think over the next few years where we're going to see things grow, especially with more Julia Grosso's making runs 
uh, through that league. And then, yeah, keep an eye on leagues like, of course, Sweden. It's been such a key developmental leagues for so many key top players that you see have gone through the likes of Sweden. Uh, you know, in leagues like Portugal as well. I mean, right now it's been very Benfica heavy, uh, but we're seeing teams, you know, around the league push and try to chase, uh, you know, Benfica. So I think that's also like a slept on league that, you know, in the next few years could grow. And that's all, of course, but within Europe, I think it's going to be fascinating to see the the Asian game as well. I mean, uh, also you look at Australia, it's been one been sort of keeping an eye on with some Canadians there. A lot of top U.S. internationals go there in the offseason, for example. So there's, you know, Canadian Danielle Steer is playing alongside World Cup winner Jessica McDonald in a front line. Like you get, uh, you know, some really good players. And I think it's a league that's grown a lot. And of course, there's North America and WSL. And then knock on wood, hopefully very soon in 2025, you'll have a league up in Canada to follow at home. And from Vince Alvarado at Vince by demand, is there a player you would like to see or expect to have a similar rise to Johnston or you can and during the 2026 cycle? That's a hard one to call because I don't know if we really knew about the players playing in League One Ontario at that point and whether you can say with confidence that a good player in League One Ontario is going to make such a meteoric rise. That's why it's so so crazy is because nobody yeah. expected that. Well, I think obviously with the caveat that this is probably what is most likely to happen, that someone's just going to come out of nowhere and really impress us. Um, based on what we know now, I think the obvious answer is Ismail Kone. Uh, especially because there are real concerns about what's going to happen post-Ativa, um, especially if Stefan Ostakio keeps playing as a box-to-box midfielder at Porto. Ideally, you go with a double pivot of Ostakio and Kone, and maybe they sort of form the midfield for the next, you know, eight to ten years, however long it is. But that would be the one that's top of mind. The other one, which maybe I'll let Alex elaborate on if he wants to, but Theo Corbinu, because that could have implications for Alfonso Davies. And then maybe that way you don't take so much out of your attack and you can put Davies in his more natural position these days at left back. And then therefore you find a bit more balance in the team. Yeah. And I mean, it's a tough question. Cause yeah, again, it's really the rise. It feels like a lot of the hot prospects, so to speak, we've already heard of. Like we've heard of the Kones, we've heard of your Corbinals, your Coliosos, your Jebisons. And the thing is, what about Johnson and Buchanan? Like Johnston in 2019 was playing for Von Azuri. Like Tejon Buchanan was a squad player for for you know New England Revolution. So it's one where, of course. Uh, I'd, I'd echo some of those thoughts for Peter in terms of names I'd like. Cause there's, there's a question, would you like versus expect? Would you like, I'd, I think center backs is a must if you're Canada. So, you know, Karifa Yao just making that jump from CPL over to Vancouver. Karifa Yao is an easy one. I'd say, you know, a player that maybe is earlier in the cycle, which would be great to see is Moise Bombido. Just everything from what I've seen, he's getting time in preseason with Colorado Rapids. So there's a chance he could get some minutes this year at the MLS level, maybe at the second team level. I think selfishly, you'd want to see some Canadian center backs go. So Bombido and Yao are guys I'd like to see. In terms of players, you know, that I expect to see, I'd throw in guys like Sean Ray, of course, having seen what he's done for for the CP, you know, at the CPL level. Uh, going to Montreal, uh, you know, someone maybe in the tack can bring a bit of a different profile. And that's always uh, going to be something intriguing. And I mean, yeah, in terms of League One, that, that's, a, you know, a lot harder to say, because how do you project uh, uh, players in League One? But 
Yeah, I'd say just keep an eye on uh, these leagues this summer because I won't be I, I wouldn't be able to throw out a name in particular, but I, I do think there's going to be a player who plays in League One in Canada. So like BC, Ontario or Quebec in 2023, that is surely going to be involved at some point in the 2026 cycle. I think not an outrageous hot take or anything of sorts because involved means very many things and, you know, uh, of co- of course, this, the level is better this cycle than it is last cycle. But I still think though there's there's a lot of talent in that league, and where we saw players make moves directly from League One Ontario to German club system. So it's not that far off to to imagine more moves like that happen. And jumping over to the domestic game, getting into the Canadian Championship, that draw went down on Monday night, and certainly some exciting draws. TSS Rovers the League One BC champions, the first semi-pro side from BC to get into this competition. Well, they'll host Valor FC in the preliminary round, and then the winner of that game will take on one of either Pacific FC or Cavalry FC, those two facing off in the preliminary round at Starlight Stadium. York United will take on Vancouver FC at York United. Meanwhile, Forge FC will take on FC Laval. In a bit of a challenging game for Laval, but Forge FC getting a PLSQ team once again after playing Outremont last season. Halifax Wanderers take on Atletico Ottawa at a neutral site due to weather concerns in Halifax. And CF Montreal will take on Vaughn SC. And the winner of that moves on to face Toronto FC in what will be a tantalizing game either way. Because either you have Vaughn Azuri versus... Lorenzo Insigne, Federico Bernadeschi, and absolutely everybody in Woodbridge and Vaughn comes out for that one. Or you have the chaos of TFC versus CF Montreal in the quarterfinal of the Voyagers Cup. Of course, TFC hosting a quarterfinal, the Vancouver Whitecaps as well in the quarterfinal. The Whitecaps, once again, could go all the way through without playing an MLS team until the final and a potential final at BC Place as well. Certainly a lot to be excited with the draw that went down tonight. Richard Scott, Toe St. Ricketts, and Terry Dunfield making the draw on one soccer earlier today. But when you look at these initial round draws, what really catches your eye? For me, it's the TSS Rovers potential as well as that potential for a Vaughn TFC game. Yeah, I also love that we could have a pair of all BC quarterfinals. Um, The fact that Montreal and Toronto would face this early. I can't remember the last time that ever happened, at least in the MLS era. So... All of this is is really fascinating, and and this is why having the inclusion of League One BC also helps this because you get more matchups like this. And also, what's really interesting is that one of those four teams in Rovers, Valor, Pacific, or Cavalry will have a pretty clear path to the semifinals without facing any MLS opposition. So that really helps their case as well. I think this is a fascinating draw across the board. I mean, it's one, I mean, must be noted, it's unfortunate in terms of the hosting restrictions that some teams had, venue availability, weather. It's unfortunate we didn't have a true, true, true opening, like open draw. But I think uh, for the most part, there's a lot of all things considered. You got a lot of tasty matchups. I mean, Rovers hosting their first game at Swangard, the first game of the competition. You can't write that any better the grass hopefully it's a nice sunny day if not hopefully it's a rainy day like hopefully it's just a stereotypical swan guard canadian championship night because people forget there have been some memorable ones in the past uh so for the rovers kick off their maiden journey 
You had in the Valor connections, like they've got Marcelo Polisi, a former Roborer on their team amongst a few others. So, of course, there's going to be a lot of ties there. Um, yeah, I didn't like uh, some some of the other storylines, like how the West draws wide open. Of course, the Whitecaps there is the defending champions, but you know, you look how there's guaranteed to be a CPL team amongst or or the Rovers amongst you know Rovers, Valor, Pacific, or Calvary to make it to the semis and host that semifinal against the Whitecaps should they make it there, or York or Vancouver. You got in the potential for Vancouver FC to host the Vancouver Whitecaps three days after opening their new stadium. Like, tell me that wouldn't be a great marketing vehicle for your new club to have a derby like that as your second ever home game for the club. So that's obviously huge. Uh, and then I think, uh, yeah, Laval getting to play Forge, great. Vaughn going to Montreal is fantastic. I don't think we've, I guess we haven't ever seen a, a semi-pro team face off against an MLS team. So I think that's just going to be great for the semi-pro team to get that opportunity to go play in a, you know, Montreal stadium, maybe play against the likes of like a Victor Wanyama player of that caliber. It's huge to see those sort of storylines. So I love that. And a TFC Montreal potential game in the quarterfinals, of the Canadian championship. Tell me that doesn't sound like absolutely hilarious to imagine a game of that caliber, a Canadian, a classic going on that early. So in terms of chaos, which I think is what you should always be rooting for when it comes to cups. I think it ticks a lot of those boxes. The CPL schedule was released on Monday. 2023 opens with Pacific FC hosting Vancouver FC at Starlight on April 14, a day not to miss at Starlight Stadium over on Vancouver Island. Another opening matchups include Atletico versus HFX, Forge against Calvary, and York versus Valor. Vancouver's home debut at Willoughby Community Park in Langley is May 7 against Calvary. And from David Anthony at A underscore Miller 16, early prediction for the most improved CPL team. Can't pick Vancouver, though. For me, it's York. They're not done building yet, but they brought in a lot of exceptional talent. That is a good shout. I was probably going to say York myself, and especially because you got another year of De Rosario. I almost feel like a low-key team to watch for me is HFX, because I'm just fascinated to see what happens with the new coaching change, with a few roster changes as well. To me, they've never been on paper, a bad side. They've always been one of the more defensively solid teams, especially when you look at the underlying numbers. Injuries have just really hurt them. When they've all been fit, I know that the Island Games is a very small sample size, but even in 2021, they were in the playoff chase. Joao Morelli gets hurt for a couple weeks. They end up dropping crucial points. I believe they got crushed by Valor in one of their games, which essentially ended their playoff hopes. They were right there. So I feel like if everything comes together and they stay healthy, that's a team that can make some pretty big strides too. Well, I think York's the easy answer here just because you look at the talent they've brought, in, especially for a young team. They brought in CPL proven talent. You look at, you know, Elijah Adekugbe, you look at Brian Wright, you look at they were able to snag Clement Baia and some of these other moves that they've made. It's definitely York, but I love the Halifax show. One team we're talking about players to watch, you know, in the next cycle again. Halifax has picked up this wealth of young Canadian defenders and mm-hmm. goalkeepers. So you look at, you look at Christian Campani, you can add him to that list of center backs that I said would selfishly would like to see improve. Uh, you see guys like, you know, Gabo Escobar came in late last year, straight out of TSS Rovers and was starting games and looked did not look out of place. Uh, and you add in some of the other young defenders they got there. If you want young future, potentially can MNT defenders, Halifax is the team to watch. The team I'm going to go with, though, is Pacific because... You know, it feels wild to, you know, for a team that lost Callum Irving, Marco Bustos, two pillars. But for now, it looks like Manny Aparicio is going to be back. They managed to re-sign 
Amir Didich and Toma Mayer-Jagir, which all of the, you know, just having that core three is addition by keeping them around, as well as Kunle Data Luke, someone who's probably going to take a step forward. And then you look at some of the signings they made, especially in attack, that they were struggling in attack. So they bring in Easton Ongal, and then now they bring in Adonja Reed from the USL Championship. Those are two very good uh, signings. And you look at some of the other you know, sneaky signings that they've been able to bring in, like Bradley Vliet from Calvary, which I think is a very underrated uh, signing because he was one of, if not the best left back in the league last year after Diadine Abzi left. I think Pacific's made a lot of shrewd moves that have kind of just gone under the radar because it feels like more teams are talking about, or more people are talking about Vancouver FC, of course, and what they're building, uh, the new guys across the pond. But uh, Pacific, you know, many teams wondered, oh, would Pacific be forgotten about with the the... 6-5 ownership, it seems like it's based on some of the signings, they don't have uh, that intention of, of being so. I guess just one piece of news as well. I don't know how close they are to even talking about a potential deal, but U-Sports leading goal scorer from last year, UNBC's Michael Henman, is training with Cavalry FC, so there might be a bit of a connection there with him potentially getting a pro deal with Cavalry FC. He's a bit on the older side, was skipped over in the CPL draft, but could be an exciting addition for Cavalry. And we'll move on to a question from Dan Clark, 999. Now knowing that Vancouver FC will have their home debut on May 7, any word on what their stadium's looking like? Well, for now, shovels are in the ground over in Langley, so that's always a good start. Cannot have stadiums uh, without shovels in the ground. Um, And now what's nice is with that home debut not coming till May 7th, that gives you uh, three and a bit months from now. To, to really get things over the line because I do have plans. Obviously, it's going to be, you know, a lot of temporary, you know, measures to start, but they, you know, they, they, they from what it sounds like, they want to have it be a relatively, I'd say, Starlight-esque stadium, just as a kind of comparable. They want to be able to rig TIFOs. They want to really have a good fan experience. So that's obviously something they've been focusing on. And, you know, now that they have this three months timeline, I, you know, there, there is shovels in the ground. Their last, I've heard, there hasn't been any stands put up or anything like that, but there has been dirt dug out uh, where stands are supposed to be. And of course, the turf is already in place. They installed a new turf there recently uh, at that Lang- right outside uh, Langley Event Center. So from there, it's, I think once the, the stands start to go up, things will go pretty quickly from there. And then uh, it'll be interesting to see how they are in terms of final touches by May 7th, because that does feel like a bit of a tight timeline. But I think the most the brunt of the the work will will see done uh, very soon, especially now in Vancouver as the the winter starts to thaw out because you know how it is in Vancouver the the cold does go away quite early. Uh, maybe I jinx it and there'll be snow in March, but uh, most in most Thank realistic circumstances, <laughs> there was there actually there was snow today. I was told that, but uh, those sorts of events will be few and far between, and they can really get some uh, legwork uh, with the rain being usually their their most persistent uh, distraction. And from Jacob Box at Jacob Y. Denberg, how do you see Vancouver FC doing in their inaugural season? I actually think they're going to do decently well because the spine they've put together pretty much since the announcement of the Callum Irvin signing has been quite impressive because you got him, you got Elliot Simmons, Rocco Romeo, who was one of the top center backs in the league last year, Mabadou Kane, who's one of the top young players in the league. I know he didn't get a lot of minutes at York, but a lot of potential there. Um... Who else? Gabriel Bitar signed. Marcus Simmons recently. Uh, Sean Hundle was um, announced today. And if you look at his underlying numbers in MLS Next Pro last year, 
He was averaging about 0.37 XG per 90 and 0.43 goals per 90 on basically average level uh, volumes of shots. So if you can fill out the rest of the spine of the team with maybe one extra creative player, I think he can actually be a fairly solid enough striker for you and push in and around 10 goals. Because I remember in 2021, he actually kind of impressed me in USL League One, albeit, but he was averaging nearly... 0.5 I believe it was expected goals per 90 in USL League One and was scoring basically every other game which led to this MLS next pro move to Inter Miami um, so I'm pretty bullish about that signing myself yeah and I mean Vancouver FC what I think will be a big advantage for them is I think the the hire of Ashvin Goatby as the mm. coach I feel like that's one where they really got such an experienced manager and you look at maybe Ottawa where they put they put together a pretty decent roster off the first year like you remember guys like Francisco Acuna and you know Ben McKendry and some of, some of the spine that they had on their team but you know with Mista coming in a relatively inexperienced coach they played a bit run and gun they didn't really play to their strengths whereas you see someone like Ashvin Gottby you feel like one thing that Vancouver FC will be I mean he said it since day one he's like four three three wingers he's already had this tactical template in place and you imagine they'll be relatively organized you know I think that's going to help when you look at especially the players they have in spine positions like Callum Irving Rocco Romeo you know and some some of those you add in the some of the NCAA punts they they've took in and I'm sure they're they're not going to be done adding CPL veterans if they can especially get a you know someone in the let's say like a six or an eight that can really you know an experience maybe someone who's experienced in the CPL or something like that I think that would give them the three kind of main pieces you need to have a good spine and I think if you have the good spine uh, with Gottby's coaching, I think uh, they can be an organized outfit that I'd say playoffs is a very tall ass, but maybe one that can at least trouble teams and, and make a maybe make a push in the late round, which I think would be a huge success for an expansion team. Yeah. And on the subject of number eights, by the way, bring Noah Verhoeven home. That solves all your problems. Ooh, that's a, that's a very interesting Let's show. do it. Do it, Vancouver. From Arter Leshinsky at Arter Leshins 3. With a number of hashtag CanPL stars leaving this offseason, Tabla, Rea, Bustos, Zator, Yao, to name a few, will we see the start of another three to four year cycle with players developing into stars and moving on, or an entire new phase of the hashtag CanPL altogether? I guess that's a bit of both, to be fair, because you already see some established players that are ready to take that next step, like Wubens Pasillas, like Osase de Rosario. Uh, Aldi Bassett's come back. I think he's going to end up kind of being you know, in, in a lot of ways, like the new Marco Bustos and that he's just like a solid attack-minded player. Um, like there are still some players of that level there, Joao Morelli as well. Um, but you are also going to start to see more of these younger players take steps in the league. And that's what the league was built for, right? Is you have these kind of three to four or five year cycles. They build up enough experience. They move on to greener pastures and then you restart the cycle again and start the process over. So this is what it's meant to do. Um, and frankly, I, I'm very much looking forward to it because we're already starting to see some of the fruits being bared from that labor. Yeah, and I think the huge part has been that some of the, there's been good continuity uh, across many teams too in terms of you know keeping you know a core. You think of guys like Amir Didich sticking around in the league. Of course, we lo- would have loved to see him make a jump up to 
you know, a different level, but seeing some of these guys that have been there one, two, three years carrying over into these cycles, it helps there be continuity to this cycle where, where it feels like for the last few years of the league, it feels like there hasn't been any years where it's been a hard restart where, oh, you've lost so many players where you have no idea where what the league's going to look like. There's been a good amount of, okay, this team has has kept a good amount of regulars. Like you look at Forge as well, their consistency, you know, that sort of stuff helps keep a standard because it's not been like, okay, one team wins, they get gutted they go down and what it's like a, you know, a bit of that gray zone, whereas it feels like there's been teams that have been able to maintain these sort of three, three year cycles. And then teams, uh, you know, forge a success in year one helps Pacific be good and win that title and cavalry also pushing. It's been nice that it, there's been that sort of the psych differing cycles amongst teams that have pushed each other. You look what York looks like they're going to be capable of doing. They're going to maybe take that next step. You hope Halifax won't be far behind you. Of course, Vancouver FC pushing. I think all of those factors, uh, you know, help the will help there be continuity and and really, you know, keep it saying from turning into an entire new phase of CPL. It really feels like it's like a gradual. It's it's less MLS where it's two point oh, three point oh, four point oh, and you can clearly see those lines in the sand. There's more of a just CPL growing consistently, and I think that's that's good to see. And from Cliff Jameson at Cliff underscore Jameson, with the CPL's goal to be at sixteen clubs in the not too distant future. And considering they are essentially committed to 10 clubs, including Windsor and Saskatoon, what are the six most likely expansion locations? Ooh. And once again, you've got to get a team into Quebec. Maybe not just one, get two. Have Quebec City and Montreal, maybe Laval. Um, just get teams into that province because there needs to be teams in that province. Otherwise, yeah. maybe Charlottetown could host a team. Yeah. Uh, of course, they, they did host the Island Games, so... They have some experience in terms of the CPL. You'd have to build a bit of a pop-up stadium in Charlottetown, not the most populous area. But when you're looking at sort of 16 cities in Canada, you're getting to sort of those points. Um, if you want to build one sort of in the Toronto area and sort of around Ontario to kind of limit travel, Barrie comes to mind. Kingston even. Kingston has a stadium that you could play at with Queen's Stadium as well. You might be getting a little bit too small there, but there's definitely sort of those cities that you can look at. Well, on Charlottetown, a lot of people do vacation in PEI during the summer, which is sort of peak CPL time, right? So I feel like you could also draw from that a little bit too. And, and there are a fair number of locals who I'm sure would be enticed to go there. That's a good shout. Obviously, Quebec City and the Montreal area is another one. Um, we've seen that Kelowna's all but confirmed for 2024, so you throw them in there. I reckon Edmonton will get in there again um, at some stage in the near future. And yeah, honestly, wouldn't shock me again if another GTA team was also added to the mix or nearby Toronto, at least added to the mix. And yeah, I'd echo all those shouts. So the other team I feel is slept on, and this goes for both the men's and women's pro debate, Moncton. They hosted Women's World Cup games. And if I'm not mistaken, they also may have hosted U20 World Cup games in 2007. They've responded well to, to they, at least they responded well to the 2015 uh, tournament it's been you know an area where there's been a good appetite for sport i feel like moncton could be one if you really want to get that sort of you know team in the atlantic give halifax some proximity if you're not if you don't think maybe prince edward island is is big enough i feel like a, a city like moncton is very slept on in, in that regard as well i think moncton could be a great addition they get decent attendance at an already plug and play stadium that they've got for moncton aglas blood games it could be something that they look at i think that Charlottetown would almost have that leg up just because it, they have that experience playing at UPI and potentially putting up a stadium around there. But I do like the idea of Moncton. I mean, 
heck Fredericton even has a, a stadium with where UNB plays. Um, if you're looking even into Newfoundland, of course, they have the stadium where, where Canada clinched their World Cup berth in 1985. So that's still standing and you could put a team there, but you're getting into very small towns at that point. And you can't really expand too big in Canada because Canada is a very spread out country made of a lot of small towns near the U.S. border. Quick MLS news. Toronto FC officially signed goalkeeper Sean Johnson. And there was a bit of an exchange on Twitter as well. TFC and Sean Johnson announcing him as the Minister of Defense. Stephanie LeBay aptly responding, sorry, what? Tosaint Ricketts, who spent time with Toronto FC and the Vancouver Whitecaps, officially hung up his boots over the last few days. And he also is heading into a management role with the Whitecaps as a club and player engagement officer. And from David Anthony at A underscore Miller 16, if TFC missed the playoffs this year, do you see them canning Bob Bradley? If so, could Bobby finally make a jump to a head MLS coaching gig? Yeah, I think so. And I'm a little surprised that he kind of hasn't yet. I know the need to get the opportunities one way or the other um, in order for that to happen. And I guess Montreal has really been the more likely choice. And would they hire a non-French speaker? Probably not. Um, But I think that if they end up having to sack Bradley and they don't make the playoffs again, despite signing the big splashy DPs and everything, um, I would not be shocked if he was let go. Now, the only downside I think to that being prevented is, is that he is also the sporting director. I, I, I don't know if that maybe influences things, but I imagine he's paid a pretty penny and he has all that control. It would probably take a lot for somebody to come in, but Listen, they've gone every other route. Maybe going the up-and-coming Canadian coaching route could be the way to go. The good news with Bobby Smirnyonis is he has very similar control at Ford. So when, if he yeah. was asked to do that role, it's not a role he's unfamiliar with. I find the TFC fit hard just because, again, I mean, I I think it would make a lot of sense logically. I just do see you look at TFC's roster makeup. You're looking at guys like Insigne, Bernadeschi. In, in MLS's past, you you think back to the days when it was David Beckham at LA Galaxy and they hired a very unproven rude Hullet to come in and coach. The precedent's always been, well, you got big stars you bring in or you look at Miami bringing in like a Phil Neville to, to coach. The hit, the precedent has been to go after some of these bigger, flashier names with experience to, you know, quote unquote, rein, rein in the stars and make sure they're committed. But I think a guy like Bobby Smirnoff would be great. I, I think he could get buy-in out of sort of those top players and really build a project for the long term. I just don't know if that would happen at TFC, but uh, it's definitely someone that I think it, it's also one where I do wonder if he might just want to stay at Forge for a long time and why not? He's been at Sigma for, you know, over a decade now he's built something great where he's got you know multiple national team players that have played at world cups done well you know kyle laren scoring a little league goal again that's a sigma product richie Lare getting that that move to nottingham fourth that's a sigma product he's built up such an empire you can almost call it with sigma that there also might just be the reality that a lot of these mls jobs might not be as enticing as what he has built because he's such a builder he's such someone who just you know, even he's won as much as you have and you talk to him and he, there's, he gets this excitement in his voice and this, you know, there's almost this sparkle in his eyes when he talks about these players that he has training at Sigma and training with the first team that it might just, there, there might never be a job that entices him away from what he's built there. It would have to be a very interesting offer, I imagine. I imagine he's just quite comfortable at Forge as well. I mean, he's got a gig that as long as he keeps the team competitive, he's 
not going to lose because he's built this club from the ground up in terms of the roster, in terms of building the actual club, the infrastructure around it. Uh, and he's such an icon in Hamilton in that area in terms of the footballing growth that he's always, I think, going to be involved in that, even if he moves into an MLS head coaching gig. And you got to remember that if he moves into an MLS head coaching gig as well, there's going to be doubts from day one. He's never coached at that level. There's going to be tests. It's not going to be easy for him when he moves to that level, if he moves to that level. And he might just be the type of guy who wants that comfortability and the success of staying at Forge. There's That's totally fine to be people like that. Um, maybe he's just not the type of guy that wants to move up because I imagine the opportunities have come, but I could be completely off base on that as well. And from Star at Hemalurgi, do you think that this can be the year where Renard proves he can make signings outside of MLS? Can Hamdi, Ibrahim, Thor- Thorkelson, and Iladis deliver? No reason why they can't, but Olivier Renard did also play a hand in probably one of the more important signings over the last few years, and that's Victor Wanyama. He came from outside of MLS, so he's proven that he can do it. Um, and th- their model really is based on giving the academy players a shot as well as signing from within MLS because they still are quite underrated on the market in terms of undervalued, right? And so they've exploited a gap in that market and they've utilized it to their advantage because now they've been able to sell Georgia Mihailovic for quite a lot more than what they signed him for, right? And so if it isn't broke, don't fix it. I know they're still going to probably end up signing a few guys from outside of MLS, but that isn't what their model is entirely based on either. But he has hit on one signing so far. No reason why he can't hit on an Iliadis or a Thorkelson or, um, you know, whoever else happens to come through in the next few years. But they just haven't had to rely on those guys too much yet. Yeah, and I mean, you look at the reality that last year they finished, you know, one of the top five teams in the league. You know, they pretty much exceed expectations. When you do that and you look at your roster and it was, you know, it was mostly guys who came within MLS it was guys like Water, Joel Waterman who came from the CPL. You know, it was guys who came from the academy like your Matthias Schwaniers. And why change that? You literally, you you did pretty much what most teams in MLS are striving to do. And you did it in a way where you prioritize local and undervalued talent. I think it's one where you stick to that model last year. And now, okay, it's different. They lost some of those pieces and they're going to look to replace them. But it's like we saw last year. There was a lot of competition. Like guys like Gabriel Corbo we're competing with Joel Waterman, but Joel yeah. Waterman wins the place. You end up having a good league. And I think that's what's key or what I've liked about a lot of Montreal signings is that they've done a good job of getting guys who can play, but also push. And I think that's something that, you know, for in terms of Canadian development, it's it's underrated because you look at guys like I think Ahmed Hamdi, that's someone, uh, you know, who, who maybe pushed someone like Ismail Kone, a bit different positions. Hamdi usually playing higher up the field. Uh, but those sort of relationships help or Thorkelson, you know, at wing back help, helps maybe, you know, a guy like uh, either Kamal Miller at left center back, Thorkelson would play there or guys like Pogiar and Schwanier out at wing back. And I think Montreal's done a good job of putting these guys like Zanussi, Ibrahim, Ahmed Hamdi, Thorkelson, Eliadas, who will push their guys who are, who, you know, they're young Canadians. And if they end up outperforming them, great. Then I'm sure we'll see a lot of minutes for Thorkelson, Eliadas, Ibrahim, Hamdi. But also if not, we might see Sean Rea thrive in a battle with, with Ahmed Hamdi. And I think if you're in Montreal, you're not going to complain if that's the case. I think you've, that's, a, that's a good signing because these guys are, are the, the, what's my, my, my final point on all this is because I end up rambling there. 
a lot of these guys are coming for cheap too. It's not like they're spending DP money on like a Hamdi and then he's flopping. At least these guys are coming in, are these projects, are these punts. And that's also a difference where you see at other clubs where you bring in an unproven guy for a DP contract outside the country. Of course, yeah, you're going to give him a, a shot at your number 10 position over, you know, your Sean Rea type player. And Montreal has also done a good job of, uh, of making these bets that are risk, uh, riskless that, okay, if a Hamdi flops out, Ibrahim flops out, so be it, or even you end up with the Joaquin Torres situation where you end up profiting off of a player that, you know, was in and out of your best 11 last year. From Ken, at my team's where red, which Canadian rookie will have the most impact in MLS this season? Well, I think Alex mentioned him a few minutes ago, but Moisa Bombito is pretty much top of the list here. Um, he's going to get an opportunity to play in Colorado. He is very technically gifted. Defensively still has a lot of room for growth there, but... Listen, he can gain that very easily. The fact that he has the proficiency on the ball that he has already gives him a pretty big head start. So he'd be the first one I'd look at in terms of uh, potential impact rookies. Yeah, I don't know if he counts as a rookie, but my vote's going Mo Farsi. I just think he seems like someone who's going to thrive under Wilfred Nancy, especially if maybe Nancy switches to a back three. And we saw already what Farsi can do. From Matt Paternostra at Matt Paternostra, is the soccer season slash playoff structure in U Sports similar to that of the NCAA? Sort of, sort of not. There's playoffs and there's nationals and the best from each conference go to nationals and compete for the national title. So in that way, it's similar. But the NCAA sort of varies from conference to conference. And there's so many conferences in the NCAA as well that it can be a little bit difficult to keep track of. But in U Sports, you have four conferences you have canada west which is alberta manitoba saskatchewan nbc and then you have the oua which is ontario and then you have the rcq which is the quebec teams and the aus which is the atlantic university sport teams the most basic way to put it is two teams from each uh, conference will go to the national championship which is an eight-team tournament held every year at a neutral one place site uh well not a neutral site by one host uh, this year, it was in Laval for the women's tournament, and it was in Kamloops at Thompson Rivers for the men. And then it's a knockout tournament from quarterfinals all the way through to the final, crowning the U Sports men's soccer and women's soccer champions. So in that way, it's very similar to the NCAA in that there's a national championship, a regular season, playoffs, and all of that. But in some ways, it's different as well. But U Sports being just a different competition, every competition slightly different. And moving into the Canada Under-17 squad, Canada unveiled the 23-man squad for the CONCACAF U-17 championship next month, which also includes a pre-tournament camp, not something always seen with Canadian soccer. Nine players are from the TFC Academy, four are from CF Montreal, and four from the Whitecaps, while four come from European-based clubs. Opening match is on February 11th versus Trinidad and Tobago. They face Barbados on February 13th and then the U.S. on February 15th. Top three from each group advance. Semifinalists qualify for the U-17 World Cup in Peru. And that'll be it for episode 106 of the Northern Football Podcast. Certainly a packed episode. Everything from Canadian Championship, CPL, Herdman out news dropping in the middle of the podcast as well. Canadians continuing to play through 2023 January in the rear view mirror already onto February and on to even closer to the women's world cup for Alex, for Peter, I've been Ben. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please remember to rate review and subscribe to the show, wherever you listen to your podcasts and we'll see you for episode 107. 